Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today's guest has written a book that I've been cooking a lot from this summer. Aubra Behrens is a Michigan-based chef and farmer whose ambitious first book, Roughage, takes on vegetables, how to cook them, and how to think about the elements of flavor so you can build confidence in the kitchen. It's organized by vegetable and offers recipes for Abra's favorite cooking methods for that vegetable, then riffs on each core recipe so you get loads of great ideas for making the most of whatever is in season. She's in conversation with Seattle restaurateur Linda Dershang, and the two talked in our kitchen in June 2019. Here's Abra Barons and Ruffage. Well, Abra, I just find your background really interesting. I mean, between being an author, a farmer, and a chef. So I bet everybody would like to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so my background is I grew up on a pickle farm, which actually means a cucumber farm, but they're uh, cucumbers that are meant to be pickled. So we sold mostly to Heinz, but my parents were also both anesthesiologists. So it was a funny mix of a lot of very long days in the summer farming and then late nights with them in the hospital. And food was always a really big part of our life. It was, we came together and ate at night. We often ate very late. And it was just really at the forefront of how we sort of convened as a family. And my mom was a great cook. The farming that we did gave me sort of a dedication to the land, but also never was really that connection between what we were growing and what was ending up on the plate. And that really changed when uh, when I was in college at the University of Michigan. I started working at Zingerman's Deli. It was there that I went like taking orders and running trays and bringing people up into the kitchen. Roger Bowser was the chef there, and he started bringing local produce into this very high-volume but ingredient-focused place. So it was there that I was starting to kind of understand this a little bit. A couple years later, he encouraged me to go to Ballymaloo, which is in the south of Ireland. It's a cooking school that's on a 100-acre farm. And I was so struck by that type of education. It was different than any other sort of food education I had ever seen. And we were really only cooking what they were growing there. So that made this nascent understanding of the local food movement, turned it into some kind of beginning thoughts of, if I'm going to cook for a living, because I really love it and I really love restaurants, how can my food be something that's representative of a place and um, of something that tells the story of the people who are doing this work or that sort of thing. So we started having that conversation at home. And then my husband went and had a beer with our friend Jess, who was saying, I think I want to be a farmer. I think I want to do this for my whole life. But I hope that there's like, there could be like some sort of food element with it. My husband just said, maybe you guys should just talk to each other and not to me about this anymore. And, um, <laughs> and so we started our farm in 2009. I had no training in biodiverse vegetable farming. Jess had been farming for a couple of years, but the idea was that we would farm together and then start a dinner business on our farm so people could come see the land where the food is grown and then have this meal. And we started doing these dinners kind of on the side and then eventually it formed its own business and we were doing that. And it really, for me, those three years of farming fully changed the way that I cook. So I started out as a somebody who was like, it was right when Fergus Henderson and Nose to Tail Eating was coming into vogue. It was like a really big part of the food world. And so I was really into cooking like, you know, big, meaty, organy things. And then um, we started growing vegetables. And I realized 
there's so much more diversity in the difference between a stalk of asparagus and a tomato and a winter squash than there is between a ribeye and a pork chop or even a ribeye and like liver, I guess. It's it's a very much of a different category. And also I found how many more things we don't see at the grocery store than what we see on the farm. So if that is the sheer volume of greens that comes on a rutabaga plant or on a turnip plant or something like that, you know, how can we utilize that because we're growing them at the same time and also some of the things that maybe aren't perfect for market, but are still really good food. And how could I kind of expand that canon a little bit? So fast forward, we ended up closing our farm for a variety of life reasons. And I moved to Chicago, opened a place there and it was fine, but I really missed that like connection to the land. So two years ago in the spring of 2017, I ended up back in Southwest Michigan working at a vegetable farm where they had this like big open kitchen space. And they're like, what can we do with it? Maybe we could have a dinner program. I was like, please hire me. Uh, I really want to live here and do this. And that's what we've been doing. So we put together meals that are based around what we're growing and people land at our farm. They do a, a tour through the gardens and through our growing spaces and then back in our farmhouse for a seven course tasting menu. And the book really came out of that sort of trajectory. So I started writing a food column for the paper in Northern Michigan five years ago. It was, to be to like totally frank, kind of a marketing ploy uh, because the food column came out on Wednesdays, which is also when our like worst market was, like the lo- least attended market. So I was like, maybe I can like drum people up to come out for this market. And so the column was very much about an individual ingredient that we were growing and either, you know, how to prepare it a bunch of different ways or how to prepare it the same way, but with a bunch of different flavors. And so that's kind of how the book came to be what it is. So then a lot of the recipes came from years of the column? Yeah, or at least the structure did. Mm -hmm. So the way, for those of you who haven't flipped through the book, the way that it's organized is there's a strong pantry section at the beginning, and then it's organized alphabetically by vegetables. So each vegetable is a chapter. There's an opening essay, and then notes on how to how to select it, how to store it, and then also different ways to prepare it. So if like for asparagus, or maybe the beet chapter is the best, it's the most representative. So for beets, there's steam roasted and pureed. I basically cook beets always the same way. Um, and so if you steam roast these beets and cut them up, the recipe is for a smoked white fish salad with beets and sour cream and some sunflower seeds and dill, like very Eastern European in sort of focus. And then there are three variations for it. So you can take this exact same beets prepared exactly the same way and put them with oranges and feta and pistachios and mint and have a very different salad on your on your table or put it with something like apples because beets are really great in the fall, like apples and cheddar and parsley or with like wheat berries and dried cherries for like really deep into the winter. So that was kind of the idea is like do this one thing and then a bunch of different meals can come out of it. But then the second technique is beet puree where you take those steam roasted beets, blend them up into a puree with some olive oil and then use it to dress pasta. So it's this really beautiful like magenta pasta with lightly pickled raisins and poppy seeds. Again, very Eastern European um, in slant. But then you could use that same puree and thin it out to make something like a borscht or you could use it to bind a risotto or blend it with white beans and make like a beet hummus that you could use on a veggie tray or like I've been using that puree a lot lately to put on sandwiches with um, you could do it with like smoked turkey or goat cheese and a bunch of arugula and have this like totally different presentation for it. 
that's kind of the crux of it. So the column kind of kind of gave the structure, and then the recipes and stuff like that came in the writing of the book. So it was a deeper dive. Right. One of the things I really loved about the book that, well, first of all, the beautiful photographs, and I mean, it's a really gorgeous cookbook. And to me, having lovely photos makes me feel inspired to cook, even though I don't actually love cooking, um, which is. Funny. Which is why I love you so much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I so appreciate people that do, and I love food, and I like socializing around food, which is how I ended up in uh, the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. So, th- first of all, it, visually, it's a stunning book, but instead of seasonal, it was mm-hmm. alphabetical, and I thought that was really interesting. Why? So there's a couple of reasons. Primary one is that I have a lot of respect for the books that are organized seasonally. I think it's an important part of the conversation in food when you can get anything at any point at any grocery store to to reconnect with that seasonality. As someone who is from the Midwest and lives in the Midwest, there is a lot of the food, national food conversation that's happening not in the Midwest. And if that's either in New York or in San Francisco or here, you know. And so I would find that with some of those books, like I remember reading Animal Vegetable Miracle, which is actually in Virginia where that's based. Barbara King Solver was starting this year of eating only local stuff. It was a really inspiring book. And it was like, we're going to start this in like early March so we can have asparagus. And I was like, Good for you. Uh, yeah, we get asparagus in June. And, you know, so it was that sort of thing of like feeling like it wasn't for me. It felt exclusive somehow. And so wanting to to be a book that anybody could use if they were, you know, in Florida. The thing about seasonality that we don't talk about that often is that like tomato and strawberry season in Florida is at the same time. And it's in like February and March. And by the time tomatoes are in all the glossy magazines, they don't have tomatoes anymore. It's too hot. And so like, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that that seasonality presents itself. But then the other reason I want to basically people anywhere to be able to like go to the market, get a CSA box, get discount vegetables at the grocery store, wherever you get your food and be able to feel like they had resources that they could get into easily. And then the other reason was that there were a couple of books that were really important for me as a young cook, which were the Chez Panisse Vegetables book and also Nigel Slater's Tender, which were also organized alphabetically. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a, a nod to the people that came before me. Both great cookbooks. Yeah, amazing yeah. books. Yeah. yeah. In the introduction, you write, there's an unhealthful danger in equating decadent foods with sinfulness and vegetables with moral fortitude. Can we talk about that a little? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's this thing around vegetables. There's a piousness to it um, or that, you know, if you crave a burger or a cinnamon roll, you're somehow like less noble. And I just like don't really buy it. And maybe that's because I'm not a a pious or noble person. And so like wanting to feel okay with myself. The other thing that really changed for me, I was talking about the style of cooking that I do is different from farming, but also what I crave is different. And maybe that's part of getting older too. But the first year at the end of farming, and this is, there's a story in the book about this, you know, we had sunk our entire savings into this farm and Firms don't earn that much money. So it was pretty tight before I was going to move back to Chicago where I had a job waiting for me and, you know, I could get paid in actual money and not like in the carrots and kale that I I had at the farm. And that's what I was eating every night. So I had like these two weeks where I didn't have any money. I was living in this weird cottage by myself. And every night I was eating some version of kale, carrots and eggs. And it was like 
kale latkes with a cabbage salad or a kale salad or like carrot puree with a poached egg or all of these different things. The meals never looked that much the same, but they were the same three ingredients. And then I got back to Chicago and was working at a pie shop and was eating like basically a pie and a half every day (laughs) and like endless amounts of coffee and then like, you know, salami and cheese and all these things that I thought I missed. And I suddenly felt like garbage and I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't deny that. So I went to the store, got some vegetables and felt better. And so there's a truth to the fact that like vegetables do make me feel better, but not in a way that makes any of those choices more superior. And I still wake up every morning really craving like a donut or a cinnamon roll or, you know, something sweet. But I also know that it makes me feel shitty afterwards. Um, sorry, I swear a lot and I don't mean to. Uh, I'm working on it. But it's, I don't have very many vices, so it's really the one I love. So yeah, so anyway, sometimes I still want to eat that cinnamon roll and it's, I think it's okay to do that. And like, maybe you're not going to feel great. You're going to take an after, a nap in the afternoon or something. But I also know that I generally feel better if I have like a big salad for breakfast with like, you know, beans or an egg or whatever. But it feels weird to jump into that world that has like some other conversations happening about like, oh, if you're like feeling anxiety, just have a stock of asparagus and you'll feel fine. And like, why can't you come to terms with that? And it's like, cause it's not true. It's really about like, just be honest with yourself. I feel this way sometimes, like sometimes I still eat at McDonald's. Like I, I'm born on St. Patrick's Day. Every St. Patrick's Day birthday, we would get a shamrock shake. And so I still get shamrock shakes and I like feel kind of crappy after I eat them, but like, I really love them. And, (laughs) and somebody was like, well, if you eat at McDonald's, you're placing your like desire for this over like the quality of life of the people who are working there or, you know, all of these things. And I don't think that that's wrong either. So I just feel like it's not black and white. And so this idea of there being like, this is the moral path uh, doesn't ring true to me. And also I think it's okay to make decisions that you're not totally proud of, but like in the way that I'm not totally proud of eating at McDonald's, but at the same time, it actually feels immoral to lie about it or to project a sort of like image of like, oh, I like only eat asparagus. And then in the back, I'm like wolfing hotcakes, you know, like that, that feels like a problem to me. And so trying to be open about that, but I don't know, I don't know if it'll like how that resonates in the food world anymore, but. Well, I think that there are just so many choices that we make with the food that we're buying is organic better than local. Mm -hmm. You know, do we want to try to eat more of a plant-based diet because it's better for the environment? And, but some people don't want to, even though Mm -hmm. they are conscious of that. You know, there's a, there is a lot of emotional decisions that we have around food. I don't believe that there are right answers. I think you have to make the best decisions you can. You know, like Michael Pollan wrote that book, Omnivore's Dilemma. Mm -hmm. It's a brilliant book what we didn't end up talking about that much is that it's actually a dilemma and that like you have to make these choices day in and day out and you might make different ones on different days or you might lose your job and not be able to make the same ones. And I think that food is this like very particular thing that is so tied to our culture, to our body image, to our mental health, to, you know, what our families were like for better or for worse, that anything that creates shame around food feels really sinister to me. And I think that like, it's, it's inspiring to see people and to think, Oh, like maybe someone who does have like a chia pudding in the morning, like maybe that's something I want to try, but to feel like I'm less than because I'm not, that doesn't feel right to me. Mm -hmm. And so I was really, I think why I put that in the book is I felt very nervous about being pigeonholed in that way. Do you have a favorite vegetable? It's funny because I wrote the cabbage chapter is about that cabbage is my favorite vegetable. And it's probably true. Like, I think it's the most 
used vegetable for me because it's a, it's around year round. Also, I love vegetable courses, but in the winter time, there's a lot more. I do eat more meat and more like brown and white foods in in the winter. And so to have like a very rich dinner, but then this like electric purple cabbage salad is really nice, and it's often cheaper than some of the other greens. And when the greens like look bad at the store, but there's this like perfect cabbage that's you know a quarter the price or whatever. And I found in this book. As I was like taking a step back and kind of looking at each of the chapters, one of the things that was a continual theme is really prizing reliability over sort of like the pristineness of like a very fickle ingredient.、Um, and I don't know that that's always true, but it was something that I sort of discovered about myself in writing it. So I think cabbage is probably my favorite workhorse of a vegetable. Then the like more frivolous things like morel mushrooms and asparagus and tomatoes can kind of come in and out, but it's always me and cabbage. That's an interesting one. Yeah, it's gonna be my it's gonna be、that. my memoir. <laughs> Just me and cabbage, on, like on a car trip together. <laughs> yeah.、Um, food waste.、Mm. That's something that's very interesting to you that you mentioned in、um, an article that I read about you. I think it's become more and more a part of the national conversation. And just for people who aren't up on that conversation right now, the last statistic that I had kind of read, and it's been a little bit, is that we waste about forty percent of the food that we grow in this country. And with that waste, we also waste all the resources that go into it, including fresh water and you know time and money and all that sort of stuff. So it feels really important to try to curtail that. And as a society, we do a and actually a pretty good job of of rescuing food on a Industrial level, you know, baby food is made out of seconds. It, spoiler alert for anybody who doesn't know that, but it's all perfectly good food, you know, or it's not even seconds in the sense that they're damaged, but in that they're a different size. So pears, for example, the fresh fruit market for pears is a really particular one because they ripen so quickly. They go through this thing called sorting, which they have to be the right size, and that's because of how they get packed into boxes. So it's like an efficiency for shipping stuff like that. So anything that is a different size, be it larger or smaller, gets usually turned. Into baby food, and those are perfectly good pairs. So, on an industrial level, we we handle it pretty well. There's always space to to hone that. Where we don't do a great job is more of the. Consumer and commercial market. So, if you、uh, are at a grocery store, like having a big, bountiful display is pretty critical to selling most things. And so, if your kale gets a little floppy because it's been in refrigeration uncovered because the like exposed leaves are more beautiful and people buy them, a lot of times that food gets pitched, or it, honestly, it gets donated mostly to pantries and things like that, which is another very complicated thing in food that, like you know, that we decide that that donating it is valuable, but also I'm not sure that it should be the food that people who are already struggling in low-income situations are getting, you know. But that's a whole other can of worms、um, that we can talk about. But so anyway, I think that there's the conversations in the book. For me, the reason I'm so passionate about it is because, say, lettuce, for example, head lettuce is like a 64 day from seed to crop, generally on average, loosely, and that's in the best growing conditions. So if it's in the spring or the fall where things are cooler, there's less sunlight, it's going to take longer. So you plant that seed. You pot it up, you put it out in the field, you weed it, you water it, you take care of it. If then you get a heat spike right as it's about to form its head,、um, it'll do what's called going to bolt, which is when it sends up its flower shoot. And anybody who grows things has probably seen this, where the head lettuce kind of like. It like stands up and gets more torpedo-like. It's trying to put up that flower stalk because plants just want to propagate. They want to spread seed, and so it's the best chance. It's like, oh, it's getting hot. That's not good. Let's send up this flower shoot and get seed set. And what it does, the plant then becomes much more bitter because 
in that transition, it's more susceptible to pest damage. And so it gets bitter so that when plant, like pests bite it, they're like, Ugh, I don't want that. And then they leave. Emphasis is mine. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so anyway, we had all of these head lettuces and we were like, well, what are we going to do with this? Like we still spent the amount, same amount of energy growing them. And now according to the ideas at the farmer's market, we can't sell them. And so we're like, but it's still good food. And I really love the chicories like radicchio and chorizo and things like that, frisee, which are more bitter. And so I was like, well, why don't we just treat this bolted lettuce like we would a chicory and, and we could grill it. And then you like get the benefits of that bitterness because it's, it's nice to eat or whatever. So we, we started bringing it to the farmer's market and selling it as grilling lettuce. And so somebody came up to the stand. They were like, oh, grilling lettuce. I've never heard of that. It's like, it's because we made it up. (laughs) But it was like, so oftentimes we would tell everybody we're being very transparent about it. Um, But this idea now at Grainer, we have that same conversation that there's all of this food that is not perfect enough to sell that meets our standard of like someone taking it home and then we lose control of how it gets used. Or the same with kale. Like, you know, the kale that we harvest one week for market is probably good for the next week, but it's just like not quite as perfect. So I get to absorb that and make a home for it. And I think that there are ways to do that in your own home too. And some of that is around like what you are willing to throw out. So like if you have wilty kale in your fridge, uh, in the kale chapter, there's a recipe for sauteing it or braising it. And that is a good way. I mean, it's just gotten wilty. You're going to make it more wilty. So it's okay to use it for that. Sort of like trying to give an okay for that because you never want to serve other people rotten food, you know, or like food that isn't perfect. There's something about like taking care of people. So yeah, that's why in a lot of the how to store sections, there's notes about best ways to store it for longevity, but then also like what to look for if your carrots are getting like a little sprouty that you should use them up or things like that. I think I need to read all about about that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I mean, and it happens to all of us, you know, like Eric, my husband has a real good time pointing out the food that we throw out and like really like rubbing my nose in it, you know, and it's true. So it happens to everybody, but also the, the less we can think about it, or even maybe the real like a lot of like epiphanies happening right now in this conversation. (laughs) Maybe the reason that like it matters to me to talk about food waste is because I think if we decide as a household that we don't want to waste food, it actually means that we're ascribing more value to it. And I think that there's so much value in the work that goes into growing food and it is not a part of the food industry that we pay that much for. I mean, I think if if you're a farmer's market shopper, you pay more and it's because it's the true cost of that food. So maybe it seems to me like if if we really valued it, we wouldn't throw it away. But that we don't necessarily equate those two things right now. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about your restaurant. Yeah, so uh, at, at Grainer, you know, it is sort of the antidote to what I was saying about this business model. Um, I I realized how much I love experiential dining. And some of it might be because I like having the control of what people are going to eat and how many people are coming. But um, our room is really small. It's 25 people. We're in the process of building out a new event space that will go up to about 35. But 35 to 50 is like sort of my ideal size of a room. And people, they said they they get to the farm. They In the nicer months, they do a tour of the farm and see the crops growing, see kind of what we're about. And then we get back to the house and um, it's generally about seven courses, a mixture of plated and family style. And so everybody eats the same thing. And a lot of times they're passing food. And it's been interesting being back in Michigan. It's no accident that I moved back to Michigan after the 2016 election. It felt 
really important. And we live in a very purple area. And I think that's the other thing about this book is wanting to try to articulate, and I'm by no means like the voice of the Midwest, and I'm not even trying to be, but I feel like there is one voice that's being amplified in the Midwest right now, and it is not it is not the voice that I know and love. And so wanting to give people a space in a very purple area where they have to share food. And we've had a couple of nights, it's rare, but it happens where like two very different political conversations are happening at the same end of the table, but they still have to pass the chicken to each other. And like, <laughs> and that feels really important right now. And, and I feel very privileged that we get to, to make that decision. But on the business end, you know, we know exactly how many people are coming. I'm portioning exactly to that amount. We don't have much wasted food because I know people's dietary restrictions in advance. So we're not trying to like whip something up. And also it provides, uh, I think that there's, I like to think of what I do at the farm as being the value added. So very much in the same line of, you know, farmer's wives that would make jams and jellies and things like that for to sell at the roadside center or, you know, kids that would keep chickens and sell the eggs as their like kind of first you know, money-making project. I feel like the restaurant is sort of that for the farm because it is a it is a more expensive product than a bunch of kale or a bag of lettuce, but also because it does absorb some of those ingredients that might not otherwise have a home. Like, for example, cherry tomatoes. You know, we grow a, a huge abundance of tomatoes, and um, but for the first little bit, they are... Um, they're not really enough to put out in the farm stand. It's like a couple of quarts here and there. And so I get those first ones and they're like this really special thing that we get to share with people. But then I don't get as many of the tomatoes until we have sort of an abundance of them. And all of a sudden after Labor Day, nobody wants tomatoes anymore. They just want like squash and Brussels sprouts. And it's like, you're going to be eating those for a long time. <laughs> just hold on. Um, and so I try to be sure that we've never wasted a cherry tomato because it's easier for me to process cherry tomatoes. I put them into like a big roasting pan and roast them down until the juices will burst and then they'll reduce into this really thick sauce. And then I just put that in quarts and freeze it. You can also pickle them or, you know, all sorts of different things you can do to make jam and stuff like that. But yeah, so it feels like I get to kind of tighten up the finances of the farm by mitigating waste. And also like I think last year, Year, we diverted like $4,200 of raw product from the compost pile. And again, that sounds like it's garbage. It's not garbage. And honestly, we would mostly the farm staff takes that food home too. But, you know, there's only so much kale you can really eat in a week. And so when we, everybody gets to pull their amount and then I get the rest of it and turn it into things or taking that kale and turning it into like kale pesto or something like that, which is again, some of the recipes in the book come from those years of, of saving that food. So how long did it take you for mm-hmm. someone to say, yes, do the book yeah. to it coming out? Well, it was three and a half years from the first conversation that I had with my agent, who I don't know how much you guys know about the publishing world. It sounds very like she-she to be like, oh, my agent. She's a literary agent who had been reading my food column for a little while and is someone who just understands that industry. So she's sort of like the Virgil of my journey on it and really knew kind of you know, how to develop the proposal and then where to send that proposal. So the first step is writing a proposal, which is, you know, what you want to write, how it's positioned in the market, how you would market it, all of those sorts of things. And that took about a year and a half. And I really credit her with making me go slow on that because I think she saw that it could be a valuable book and wanted, she was like, you know, the better you write this, the more it'll land in the hands of an editor that understands it and you'll have fewer hurdles down the road. And she was right about that. So year and a have to write the proposal. And then I signed with Chronicle April of 20. 
17. And then I had about eight months to write the book. I delivered the manuscript January 1st of 2018. And then in that subsequent year, we did all the photo shoots and the illustrations and all the editing, uh, but the bulk of that writing. And some of it, again, was pulled from the column or other pieces I had written, but mostly it, it's new. it's new writing. Wow, a year and a half to do the proposal. Yeah, it took way longer than any other single stage of the process. Yeah. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. Would any of you imagine that? But for some reason, that just seems like a, to put a lot of your heart and soul in. Yeah. If, then if someone said, no, never mind. Well, and some of it, too, was, um, you know, I had a friend who is an editor at a, at a publishing house that I liked. And so we gave him first look at it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it was, you know, apparently also to the publishing industry, like sort of stopped working in August and then also at Christmas, which is funny being in the restaurant world where it's like, you're going to be gone for six weeks, you know, but that's what happened. So anyway, we sent it to him at the uh, middle of July and it was like, well, if we're going to give him first look, then it's going to go till September. And then there was a lot of conversations about this book and whether or not they would buy it because there's a lot of vegetable books out there and it's written by people who have a much broader platform than I do or who are in a more marketable city or any of those sorts of things. And so we went through a couple rounds of development of other ideas for the book because they basically said, like, we're not going to buy this book, but you could do maybe a deep dive on corn or like, you know, something like that and make it like a coffee table book about corn. You're from the Midwest. Um, and it's like, <laughs> well, it's maybe not what I was going for. Um, <laughs> corn and soy. And then, um, <laughs> um, and then we were talking about some other ideas and, and it was really nice to have that time. And finally I was like, you know what? no, I want to write this book that I had started this proposal on. And so it was a good lesson in having some people say no and some people that I really cared about say no and then to say like, okay, am I going to turn and make something that's a bit more like positioned in the marketplace or to really do what I want to do? So it was at that point that we sent it to other publishers and Sarah Billingsley from Chronicle, she just understood it from the get-go and I think saw that you know, kind of that best versus favorite. Like there are really beautiful vegetable books that I'm sure in this in the shop that are very high end vegetables. And I don't know anybody that cooks out of them except for other chefs. And so really trying to make it a home cooks cookbook felt really important. And I think Sarah saw that um, and, and ran with it. You know, I've been traveling now for about a month and uh, bookstores like yours are like truly godsends. I mean, not only for just the sheer volume and how you're helping curate, you know, what people are reading, but also for nights like this and like the the development of community that happens in a store is something it's really amazing to see so many people uh, who reference Book Larder and Celia at Omnivore as being like the matriarchs of that second wave of, I don't know, second wave, whatever wave of bookstores, including I have some friends who have a bookstore in Pittsburgh that they opened and they were like wigging out that you, that were hosting me. And I'm just like so grateful. So thank you so much. And thank you, Linda. Yes. Thank you, Linda, so much. Many thanks to Aubrey Behrens for visiting us in Seattle and to Linda Dershang for leading the conversation. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Ruffage and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. If you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. 
Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.